Good morning, church. I'm excited to see what kind of microphone adventures we're going to have today. I'm going to thank our music ministry team. Uh, thank you for leading us in worship, and also thank you for helping us learn how to rejoice in the Lord through our calisthenics as well. Up and down, up and down. That's also very important along the way. So I'm um, very thankful for our team each week who faithfully comes. They're here very early each week, uh, just preparing, uh, taking time to go through their music so that they can lead us in worship. And I'm always thankful for uh, their ministry. Uh, in your weekly this week, as in each week, there are these communication forms. They help us to build our congregation and community here at CNBC. So if you have a moment, go ahead and take that form. You can just fill it out. If you're with us online today on this wonderful holiday weekend, you can click the link online and fill that out as well. And just let us know how we can be praying for you, walking along with you. There's opportunities to volunteer on that sheet. All kinds of wonderful ways that you can get connected to the community here at CNBC. And at the end of service today, there's boxes in the back. You're welcome to just drop those in those boxes uh, with your offerings as well. It is September, and this is Labor Day weekend, and we have a new verse for this month. It is from the Gospel of Mark, which we're looking forward to studying together here in just a few short weeks. So in two weeks, we begin our series through Mark's gospel. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's not going to be three years. Uh, I, I'm going to keep it. We're going to be done with Mark by Christmas, but we're going to have fun uh, together through the gospel. Why don't we say the memory verse for September together? Jesus said to them, follow me and I will turn you into fishers of people. Mark 1, 17. Very good. Thank you. Well, this summer we have been uh, going through a series, uh, we've called it Life in the Kingdom, and in this series we have been exploring what it looks like for believers today, those of us who have been invited to participate in the ways of the kingdom, what it might look like for us to be living those things out in our daily lives as we walk with the Lord uh, each and every day today. And today's uh, message is the last of our series. It is titled Fresh Produce, and perhaps it's appropriate for this time of year. I was just thinking, I believe last week or the week before, it was the Elizabethtown Fair, if I'm not mistaken. And in a few short weeks, we're going to have the Slanko Fair, and there'll be the LS Fair and the Effort Fair. And one of the realities that we celebrate during fair season is the abundance of the harvest, the produce. And somehow, I just, I just can't fathom how you have all of these wonderful fruits and vegetables that are created. And the thing that I look forward to the most are the funnel cakes and, 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 the, and the elephant ears. They're, they're my favorite, the, the cinnamon sugar things. It's the only time of year that you can get them. Some of you, uh, if you're familiar with the Quarryville or Solanco Fair, you, you know about the oyster sandwiches, right? It's the only, my dad, it's the only time of year you can get an oyster sandwich. Yeah, well, anymore, I don't know who eats them. So... But, uh, but if you're really, really longing for your oyster sandwich, your time is coming, and, and you'll be excited. What a, what a fruit of the fall harvest season, oyster sandwiches. Just, it's funny, some of the traditions that uh, come up as we celebrate these things. Last week, we answered the question, where do we go from here? And that was part of this series where we were looking at the Great Commission. 
and where Jesus called his disciples to go into all of the world and to make disciples uh, by preaching the gospel and sharing the good news of Jesus. And so perhaps an appropriate follow-up question that we might ask today is as we are going, as we are doing what God's called us to do along the way, what kind of fruit should we expect to see? And that indeed is the question we're going to address as a congregation today as we look in Galatians chapter 5. What qualities does the Holy Spirit produce as he indwells and works through Christian individuals and congregations? Or we might ask the question this way. What is the fruit of the healthy Christian community? And that's the question Paul's going to explore and engage with us in this text today. If you have your Bibles, you want to go ahead now and turn to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be exploring verses 13 to 26 together today as we consider this question among a few others. And before we uh, read a portion of the text, let's pray and ask God's help as we study together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its goodness, and we thank you for the way that you use it to uh, empower us, to fuel us, to move and motivate us in this world. Uh, Lord, indeed, it's, it's a time of year where the weather starts to break in this area of the world. Fall is upon us. We begin to celebrate the bounty that you bring through the harvest, uh, many months of hard work, Uh, Lord, we are thankful. We are a thankful people because of your work uh, in our lives. And Father, we want to be faithful. We want to be faithful to produce the kind of fruit that's honoring and glorifying to you. We know that the Spirit does that work, but we want to be mindful of what it looks like and how we know uh, that we're walking in the Spirit rather than walking in the in the flesh. And so as we approach this text today from Galatians, uh, our prayer would be that you would just uh, help this text to form us, uh, help us to learn, to, to know how uh, we should be living in community with one another and living individually as Christians, and help us honor you by the way you're going to change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Galatians 5, we're going to read verses 13 to 15. To begin our time today. Paul writing. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But... If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now, Galatians, of all of Paul's letters, is not a letter for the faint of heart. This is a letter where Paul is really going to unravel and challenge and even some ways uh, disturb some of the comforts that had become ingrained in some of the local congregations that were spread throughout the region of Galatia. Loyalty was a distinguishable fruit in the province of Galatia. The broad population outside the church was marked by their fierce loyalty to the Roman Empire. 
But within the church, and this is a newly forming early church in Galatia, there was known a loyalty to the traditions and the customs of Judaism. It was a loyalty that within their congregations was creating a great deal of dissension and division. And one of Paul's primary purposes for writing this letter was to effect change and to provoke early Christian leaders to relinquish their reliance on the law and traditions of Judaism in favor of Christ and his law. Some folks throughout history have called this group that existed uh, in the Galatian church the Judaizers. And the Judaizers taught that new believers needed to not only adopt portions of the Mosaic law, but also actively follow and practice or carry out its traditions in order to be recognized as a true part of the Christian community. The major issue that Paul is addressing in this letter is the issue of circumcision. Something that, for reasons that we don't need to elaborate on today, if it were to be enforced by the church, would have become a major obstacle and stumbling block to the early growth and flourishing of the Christian community. It was both the position and the demand of the Judaizers that male converts to Christianity, regardless of their age, undergo the physical procedure of circumcision as a sign of their willingness to adopt the customs and traditions of Judaism and respect the Jewish law. In fact, as you see in Acts chapter 15 on the screen here, there was even some among them that said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Strong words. This was the thrust of the teaching that had ingrained itself within the Galatian community. And Paul was vehemently opposed to this man-made requirement for salvation. So in the first four chapters of his letter, he sets out to inform and to correct this errant thinking. The error in the teaching of the Judaizers was that one needed something more than Jesus to truly be saved and to be received by and identify with Christ and his church. It also boiled down to an outright unwillingness of the Judaizers to recognize and accept that God's gift of salvation was and is and remains a gracious gift, one that is freely given. A gift that comes by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. A gift that once given could not be revoked, regardless of whether or not a person would agree to follow the man-made traditions, including circumcision. And with their desire for all to be circumcised, the Judaizers carried this false confidence that within themselves they had some tangible or physical role in their own salvation. 
And so convincingly, in the first four chapters, Paul argues that for those who were in Christ, it was God who already performed the eternal circumcision of the human heart. And God's work through Christ was and is enough. The justification and the righteousness of the believer would not be given then by some work or some act of human hands, but instead would be imputed or applied by the faithfulness of Christ and his work. And so here in chapter 5, Paul is beginning to bring life application to the arguments that he has made in chapters 1 through 4. He recognizes that there could be some within the Christian community who hear these words and who recognize this newfound freedom in Christ and they see it as a license to just live however they want. And that was the concern of the Judaizers. Well, if we don't hold people accountable for a physical requirement such as this, then they'll probably just go on living however they would like to live. It was an attitude that Paul had corrected in Romans when he answered the question, should we continue to sin so that God's grace may abound with the resounding, may it never be. You can find that in Romans 6, 1 and 2 and also uh, in verse 18. In verse 18 of that same chapter, Paul says, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. And to live as a slave of righteousness, friends, it it means something. As this lifestyle becomes embedded and deeply rooted, revealing itself in the life of a believer. Paul says in verse 13 of Galatians 5, Be careful not to use your freedom as an opportunity for sin or for the flesh to prevail. Instead, rather, through love we are to serve one another. And as Paul reminds us in this verse, this way of living fills up the spirit of the entire law, a spirit which he defines in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is not the spirit that pervaded over the Galatian church. Paul wanted it to be. Paul desired it to be, and not just for the Galatian church, but also for our churches today. There was another spirit, an opposite way of living, one that Paul is soon going to describe in greater depth, but he summarizes it in verse 15. And what is important to note that as a church, our lives and as individual Christians, our lives are to be characterized By the freedom found in sacrificial love and service rather than the slavery of consuming one another. Paul broadly characterizes the approach of the Judaizers as one that is motivated by the desires of the flesh. In an attempt to make everyone uniform through the adherence of the Jewish custom of circumcision... The Judaizers were encouraging and perpetuating an environment grounded on pride and human effort that was not conducive 
with the ways of Christ and his kingdom or his law. Paul describes it in verse 15 as the biting and devouring of one another. We talked about produce. What do you like to bite and devour this time of year? I like biting and devouring watermelon. Anybody else like watermelon? The problem with a watermelon when you bite and devour it is what? It, it makes a mess. <laughs> right? Juice all over. I have a child that loves watermelon. Uh, almost to the point where we're always like, be careful, buddy. You know what happens when we eat watermelon this frequently. This, in this amount, right? But it gets everywhere. Juice running down our lips, all over our shirt. It's a mess. A lot of the things that we enjoy eating this time of year, uh, maybe. Corn, corn out. And in a similar fashion, when the church is consumed with biting and devouring one another, rather than uniting around Christ and walking in the Spirit, it can be a mess. And, and Paul is actually going to describe in vivid detail in verses 16 to 21 what that mess could look like. And so we might ask, what is the fruit or produce of a community that is centered on the consumption of one another rather than centered on Christ and his commands. And Paul's going to describe that. Let's take a look at verse 16, and we're going to read down through 21. Paul says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, Divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And when we read and study texts like this one, it's so important that we try to seat ourselves in the position of the original reader. And that can be hard as as time and space continue to separate from the original writing. But it is important to remember that all of this is written and delivered before mass production, before the printing press. And so these letters were brought to small church communities that were forming, that were gathering, that were growing, and they were read within the communities of people. They were interpreted, understood, and applied within community, heard within community. And while all of us come to Jesus individually, one of the first realities after our salvation is our baptism and our placement into the church, universal, the broader Christian community. 
And in this, as Paul states in Romans 12, we belong to one another as siblings in Christ. We are family. Now, that doesn't mean, right, just like normal, everyday families, we don't always love each other or get along, right? Some of our siblings can be a real thorn in our side, right? And we love them. We love them, but they're hard to get along with sometimes. And the same should be true and, and is true in the church. One significant factor that Paul identifies that we all share, both individually and every local Christian community, is the Spirit of God. The same Spirit is given to every individual believer, and the same Spirit exists within every Christian community. And so our lives here on earth, they become much about learning what it looks and feels like to live and to walk in the Spirit. What does that look like? It can be something that seems very flighty. But Paul soon, in just a few verses, is going to give us some tangible evidence of what it looks like. First, he's going to show us what it doesn't look like. One gigantic issue that we discover is that even after our salvation, we still have to deal with our flesh. And though we're free from the consequences and the wages of sin, we are still influenced and impacted by the sin-filled desires that exist because of sin being an ever-present and persistent reality here in this world. So Paul goes on, starting in verse 19, to describe the desires of the flesh in detail. This is not meant to be a comprehensive or exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a good and it's a helpful list that is, assists us in seeing how sin is present and manifesting itself both in individuals and within communities. And remember the words of verse 15 as we explore this list. One way to understand it is to be aware that Paul is describing what it looks like to live in a community that is just bent on consuming one another rather than serving one another in love. He begins his list with sins of a sexual nature. Paul has in view here at the beginning of the list any sexual relationships, improprieties, or deviances that take place outside of God's design for marriage. And in their original languages, the words that Paul is using in this list, they imply sexual sins that happen behind closed doors where one might think that they're not hurting anyone else. But there also implies sexual sins that happen out in the open, shamelessly, in public. Not taking into consideration the impact of the behaviors on neighbors and the broader communities, including the church. These words are meant to also include sins that take place in both the body physically, but also the mind. And what's at stake is the purity of the church, together with its health and well-being and its testimony. But also the purity, health, well-being, and testimony of the individual believers 
who make up the church. The thought for us is that individuals and communities are too precious to God as people and children created in His image to be consumed for the sake of lust or personal pleasure. Ultimately, the sin of sexual immorality is a sin of consumption. We're taking someone who does not belong to us in a physical sense and using them to fulfill our own gratifications or desires. And sexual sins can take place both within the confines of marriage and outside the confines of marriage. And in the end, what we discover with sins of this nature is that they will load down. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians and other places. They load down and they burden both individual believers and the broader Christian community with all of the pain and brokenness and heartache and mental and social and physical realities that stem from disordered and misplaced, mispracticed sexual desire. In every instance of sexual sin, there is unbearable and unspeakable pain. There's breaking. Friends, some of you know the painful realities of the torment. Torment that can have effect sometimes for many years. Even if there has been reconciliation and restoration within relationships. And there is so much more that could be said on this matter. Our time this morning is inadequate to cover all of it and to study all of the intricacies related to it. But what we understand more broadly is this. Healthy Christian communities will endorse, practice, and participate in God-ordered, God-honoring, healthy sexuality and sexual behaviors. Paul's message is clear. It's repeated in his other writings in the New Testament. Sexual sins bring brokenness and division into the Christian community. And the Christian community should remain vigilant in protecting against such consuming and damaging behaviors. And so in verses 20 to 21, Paul moves on from sins of a sexual nature to other sins that are also actively working against the flourishing of Christian community. These are sins that could be understood and, and have been identified as sins of consumption. There's idolatry, sorcery, hostility towards one another that produces strife. We see jealousy. Outbursts of anger or fits of rage, as it says in some translations. Rivalries, dissensions, factions, envy, murder, drunkenness, carousing. In general, any behaviors, friends, any behaviors in congregations and communities that are tearing down or breaking apart healthy Christian relationships and churches are considered as works of the flesh or rotten produce. They do not belong. Now you love produce. I love produce. 
But you know what you do when you open up the fridge and you go into the produce drawer and you pull it out and those really juicy red raspberries that you wanted to eat and you couldn't wait to eat are covered in mold. But you just had a hankering for them. How many of you have that little debate in your mind? Now, if I wash these off, <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> Throw them away. <laughs> or in our case, we give them to the turtle. <laughs> Poor turtle. Yeah, we we got to be careful. You know, if, if there's if there's produce that's rotten. And we're talking about behaviors, not people, friends. I want you to know that. Right? Those behaviors need to be called out. And those behaviors need to be vigilantly pushed back against and removed from the community. And we had to care for the people who are wrestling with them. Not just people who are practicing them, but friends, people who have been affected. Victims. Care is needed. On every front, there needs to be reconciliation, restoration when, when available, when able, if able. These matters have to be handled carefully, gently, discerningly, lovingly. But they cannot be ignored. We don't leave the moldy produce in the drawer and close it and say, ah, I'll come back next week. It doesn't go away by itself. It has to be addressed. One scholar said the following, quote, the common feature in this catalog of vices seems to reside not in the precise ways in which these 15 items manifest themselves, but in the self-centeredness or egocentricity that underlies all of them, end quote. And that's what sins of consumption are. They're egocentric. They're self-centered. We live in a very consumeristic culture, one that celebrates, right? Have it your way, not to put down a local establishment or business, but the customer always being right, getting what we want, how we want it, when we want it, by any means that we think we should have it. And this attitude, at its core, is an attitude of pride. It's one that emphasizes and endorses and encourages consumption of one another, the biting and devouring of one another. If I can't get what I want, uh, I should be able to, even if it comes at the expense of another person's best interests. And friends, the message of the cross is so counter to this. Jesus says, deny yourself. Deny. Not to gratify oneself, to deny the flesh, not to feed or to fuel it. The flesh that warred against healthy Christian communities in Galatia is the same flesh that wars against the formation of healthy Christian communities today. And Paul ends this section with a very strong caution for individuals who claim to be of Christ and for the communities they're a part of. If our communities are forming and coming together in a way that contributes to the consumption 
of one another, rather than the sacrificial love of one another, Paul says our inheritance, our very inheritance is at risk. In other words, we might not be who and what we claim to be, and we might not be serving who we think we are. If we say we serve Jesus and his kingdom while we participate in the biting and devouring of one another, the tearing down of brothers and sisters in Christ, we are not serving Jesus and his kingdom at all. For far too long, our not-yet-believing communities Our neighbors that don't yet know Christ, they have watched churches bite and devour one another so we can have it our way. And friends, when we do this, we stain the testimony of the church. We stain the testimony of Jesus' work in our communities. Communities that God has planned us in with with effect and a calling and a purpose to shine And what kind of effect can we have? And how brightly is our light going to shine when we're practicing the consumption, the biting and devouring of one another rather than a submission to one another in love? If our lifestyles and our words and our actions are not endorsing, encouraging, and engaging with the principles of the kingdom of God as described and defined by Jesus and his word, we may not actually be living out the principles of his kingdom. And so as we look at the works that the flesh produce, thankfully Paul doesn't just end here, right? Because there are good fruits as well. We enjoy good fruits this time of year. Apples, peaches, pears, so many good things coming off of trees. Paul is going to continue by answering The following question, what are the products then of individuals and communities who are filled and fueled by the spirit? Take a look at verse 22 and we'll read through verse 26. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The fruit that the Spirit produces is filled with God-honoring flavors. Opposed to our rotten raspberries in the produce drawer how about that fresh peach that you just have been waiting to eat and the smile it brings to your face when you bite into it and you feel the juices run down your lips so good so sweet so delicious so full of flavor so inviting sometimes you can't just have one Some of us have to plant trees. I won't mention who. There are some in our congregation who've planted their own peach trees. (laughs) Just so good. And these are the flavors. These these spirit-filled flavors. They're the effect that they can have on communities. When as believers we come together and these things are true of us. As we worship God 
together. Being truly transformed, living out the life-giving message that we have. And when we study and we reflect on this list, I've always found that it's helpful to take this list of good fruits. And if we want to know what they looked like as lived out back then, how they were applied. I think one of the greatest examples, I don't think, I know one of the greatest examples that we have is Jesus. So you take this list, you lay it on the life of Jesus as it's presented in the Gospels, and we understand that Jesus perfected the production of this sort of fruit, every one of them. He knew how to produce them perfectly in community. And as such, he was the master gardener, the expert producer of the Spirit's fruit. His life becomes an example for our lives regarding how these fruits might manifest themselves in our own day-to-day travels. And again, this is not meant to be an exhaustive list. Paul's not saying that these are the only fruits, but it's one that's certainly chock full of qualities conducive to honoring God and bringing good to the communities that we've been called to be a part of. And if laws needed to be made in order to rein in and modify the behaviors of the flesh, there are no laws needed regarding the faithful and right production of the Spirit's fruit. Those belonging to Christ, as Paul understands, have been given power in Christ to deny or crucify the desires of the flesh, to take hold of Christ, and to live and to walk in the Spirit as He has given it to us. And the idea of crucifying the flesh here is both attached to the once and for all nature of our salvation. As one who is in Christ, we no longer need to identify with the self-serving natures of our flesh And being firmly planted in Christ, the character of our lives has been eternally transformed, producing the fruit of his indwelling spirit. But Paul is also referring here to this ongoing awareness that the deeds of the flesh are not to be characteristic of our lives. That instead, we find ourselves deeply rooted in Christ, avoiding falling prey to the flesh, which is still a very real part. Of our existence. The life of faith is seen in both individuals and communities where the presence of the Spirit is clearly seen as He is actively producing the fruit in and through us. Friends, we walk by faith. God does the work of fruit production, His Spirit does it. He produces the fruit and He's faithful to do it. So how does it work? How does it look? How might individuals and communities pursuing Jesus together recognize the production of the Spirit's fruit in and through our lives? And I'd invite you to just imagine with me for just a moment the power and the effect and the sheer beauty of a congregation of people who have embraced, embodied, and who are actively producing these fruits as the Spirit's at work within them. Think of the countercultural nature of each of these fruits as they're described and defined in the scriptures. Paul starts with love, the sacrificial laying down of our lives for one another, the desire for the best of another person, putting aside our own interests and desires to lift and to build one another up 
instead. The refusal to hold a grudge. The refusal to keep a record of wrongs. The refusal to demand our own way. And what comes from these communities then is joy, a confident hope in the midst of suffering. We sang about hope and suffering today as we sang, Blessed Be Your Name. There can be confident hope in the midst of suffering, grief, and pain. The assurance of a good and bright eternal future for all who are in Christ. The knowledge and the awareness of being known and being seen and being loved by the God of all creation. Doesn't that produce joy within you? The God of this universe loves you, sees you, and knows you personally. And that should perpetuate joy. And then there's peace. No reason to worry or to be anxious, to fight or to war against one another. A continual understanding and appreciation of the fact that the battle not only belongs to the Lord, but in view of eternity, He's already won the battle. He's victorious. The peace with God that comes through the reconciliation we've experienced through Jesus being made right with God. Our future eternity is secure. As communities, as individuals, we can live in a spirit of peace. When the culture catastrophizes, anybody hear any catastrophizing lately? If you haven't, you will in a few months. Get ready. The end of the world comes every four years, right? It's been that way too, probably since we've been formed as a nation. I can't tell you. I mean, in 20-some years of ministry, every four years we have to talk about the Antichrist, no matter what or who is in leadership. It just comes up. There's this catastrophizing that takes place, and we don't have to participate. We don't have to participate in it. We can say, no, I can live at peace. My future is secure. My hope is set on Christ. I have great joy. Yes, the things of this world are messed up. But it's okay. I'm okay. We're okay. Jesus said he's going to build his church. And he's doing it. Because he's faithful and he always is. And my then, if we have that mentality, boy, we can be patient. We can be patient. No need to hurry. This one's hard for me. I people, my mentors are all laughing right now. Chris, be careful. Be careful what you say, you hypocrite. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not a patient individual by nature. But we have this gift of eternal life. Why rush? Take things slow and steady. Take the long game approach. There's going to be setbacks. There's going to be discouragement along the way. Patient helps us. It helps us work towards understanding when there's disagreement. I don't have to know today. I don't have to know right now. I don't need the answer today. I can wait. God is still faithful. Even when I don't know. Praise the Lord. Because I don't know a lot. Patience realizes that good things come on God's timing as he works and brings them to fruition. And isn't it amazing? We could go through this list. God is incredibly patient with us. 
So patient communities and patient individuals see no reason to deal with others impatiently. For we ourselves have not been dealt with impatiently by God. Then there's kindness. The ability or intention to treat everyone with the respect and courtesy that they are doing the best that they can right now. To paraphrase the late Robin Williams, he said, Just about everyone we meet is fighting a battle we know nothing or very little about. At the very least, we can be kind. Grace and kindness are kinsmen. Kindness and mercy are also closely related. And again, we find that as individual believers, we have been treated with incredible kindness by God. The scriptures actually even say that it's his kindness. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Wow. And if there's something in our lives or someone in our lives, if we ourselves are struggling and enslaved with some sort of sin, it could be kindness towards another person that God might use to draw them towards behaviors of confession and repentance where they might ultimately find forgiveness through Christ. Kindness, friends, a fruit of Christian communities and individuals. These are good fruits for our communities and our congregation. There's goodness. Paul includes goodness in this list, and what he's aiming at is the intentional and constructive actions of individuals and communities whereby we are actively seeking and pursuing the good of others in our congregations and our communities. Actively, intentionally seeking other people's good and flourishing. Then there's faithfulness. Are we viewed as a people who are reliable and trustworthy? Are the behaviors and the patterns of our lives congruent with the content of our beliefs? Gentleness, speaking uh, to a willingness to yield to the authorities that God has placed in our lives. Not fighting against them, not complaining about them, or making their work grievous. It's the broad consideration of the other person. And then self-control. The idea of self-control connotes this mastery of oneself, both in the individual sense and a communal sense. But really, again, it's the spirit within us that gives us an awareness that God's in control. He's got this. So I don't have to bite and devour another person. I don't have to consume. He will he will handle it. That's self-control. That's self-control in a world that says, you got to do it. You got to take the bull by the horns, buddy. Get it done. Just do it. One of the most popular phrases and slogans of our world. Hey, when we try on our own strength, our own effort, our own volition, all of our own energies to put forth and to do, 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 do. That's not always self-control, self-mastery. We're in Christ, given one spirit. His spirit indwells us. He lives in us. He works through us. 
recognizing that, walking by faith, understanding our own imperfections, being gracious with one another and ourselves. Perhaps those are the ways of self-control. Paul affirms that for all these fruits, there can be no law. For in the production of these fruits within our communities, we're practicing and actively applying the greatest command of Jesus, thereby fulfilling the whole law. Love your neighbor as yourself. And as we participate in Christ together in Christian communities, these are the fruits that should be produced within our congregations.